Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Good morning, everyone. Really is my privilege to be here with you. You know, um, I view myself as a friend and a father in this community. And um, whenever we have friends into, even now we've church planted, we're busy. We haven't launched yet in Costa Mesa. Darren will be coming soon. We've got John Mark coming next month and so on. I always ask our team three questions. When we have a friend, a partner in ministry come in, three things. One, what does God confirm about our community? What does God say, well done, this is going fabulously. Number two, what does God correct? Because my job isn't to make you feel good about yourselves. My job is to help and empower you on the journey God has set before you. I'm a kind of a visiting drill sergeant, if you wish. If I do my, if I do my job well, you will do a few more push-ups today because I've been here. You will walk an extra mile. You'll carry an extra pound. You will be even more assigned to the mandate God has given you. So, so what is God confirming? What is God correcting? And then thirdly, what is God adding? What is God adding to the garden story today because I'm here? I don't come here with any intent to do those things. I just know God does them. What is secondly very interesting is that I'm teaching from Matthew chapter 4. Partly I know that uh, Darren has taught on the fasting as part of the ways of Jesus. And then he told me today that you guys were actually reading Luke chapter 4, which is the same moment in the Jesus story, just accounted for or read by two different authors, one an accountant, the other a doctor, Matthew the accountant, Luke the doctor. So grab your Bibles with me. If you don't mind, we will dive straight in and um, we will see how far we can get with this conversation. Matthew chapter 4 Uh, Matthew was a tax collector, so he was an accountant. He was not highly popular with his city, with his people. He left much behind to embark on a life of wealth and means. And then Jesus comes along and basically calls him in two words, follow me, to leave everything he had left his people for. He'd forfeited his family, he'd forfeited Israel, his culture, his language, his popularity to become wealthy. The price tag for his wealth was everything. And Jesus comes to him and in two words takes him away from everything into followership. It's a profound narrative. In Mark chapter 4, we read this. Then Jesus, those of you who are newer to the scriptures, there are four Jesus stories written by four different men and this is one of them. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And then it's one of Darren's jokes, you know, same kind of feel. 40 days, oh, then he was hungry. It's kind of really, um, he probably was. Uh, And the tempter came and he said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. I will use your tactic now, the devil says. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, again it is written, 
you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if, if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Help me now, precious Holy Father, to account for a real time moment. Jesus, a man, somehow holding his godness in suspension and living fully, completely as a man down here, facing every trial and tribulation we face, yet without sin. And may you grant us understanding today to do this well. Help me, the communicator, the teacher, the instructor, the coach, to communicate your heart in a way that we need to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1996, August of that year, Meryl and I and our two girls arrived here in the States. Los Angeles was not my destination of choice. Meryl and I wanted to plant a church in Hong Kong. And um, long story why that did not happen. My accent tells you I'm from South Africa. And uh, we landed here in August. The Tuesday we landed. Friday there was an elders meeting. They gave me a broken church. It was a church that had, had three splits. It had moral and financial failure. And we walked into a firestorm. The tumble drying effect of immigrating if you've ever done it, you understand, you do not know what is up and what is down. Nothing is familiar, nothing sounds the same, feels the same, looks the same. Um, and uh, we bought a home in Diamond Bar. And uh, what, in my great African wealth of spiritual knowledge, I did not pick up was that my wife was not sleeping, that she was having nightmares. Meryl is the most prophetically sensitive of the two of us. I have two daughters, as I said, my second, Dana, who was eight at the time, is equally extremely prophetically sensitive, and she was having nightmares. The girls weren't sleeping, but in my exhaustion of trying to land my family, buy a house, buy a car, never mind turn a church around, get driver's licenses, you can imagine, if I'm honest, you think your life is difficult, emigrate. One night, it was about two o'clock in the morning, it was our second month in, and Meryl woke me up again. Now, I would have to, I would love to tell you how incredibly kind, gentle, and tender I was, but I was not. I was exhausted, I was irritated, and I was furious, and I ripped the, 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 the comforter off, and I jumped out of the bed, and as I opened the bedroom door and started walking out, muttering to myself, the only way I can describe what happened is that I walked into darkness. Now, you must understand, ministering into Africa has many benefits because it's not a cerebral faith. When you minister in the villages, your God has to be stronger than their God. The miracles have to be stronger than their miracles. So this was not strange for me, but it was as if I walked into the person of darkness. I closed my eyes. I was not like Martin Luther who's reported to wake up one night and the devil was standing at the foot of his bed and he, and he turned around and he said, well, it's only you and he went back to sleep. <laughs> I was not Martin Luther in that moment. I clenched my eyes with greater tenacity I grabbed the side of the stairways, kind of the, the, the rail, 
And I found myself praying, and soon my prayers, Meryl told me afterwards as she heard, moved from, from being kind of whispers of fear and intimidation to ever-increasing volume and tone and authority, and I started praying in tongues. For those of you who don't believe in praying in tongues, I feel so sorry for you. Because in that moment in time, I need more than my English and Afrikaans languages could give me together. I knew in that moment that in the busyness and the haste of a life in Los Angeles, I neglected one of the most obvious things that I'd been schooled at for 20-some years in ministry in South Africa, and that is we have a devil who is alive, who's personal evil, and he is out to destroy us. And I took probably the next two hours and prayed through every room in my house at the top of my voice. When I went into the girls' rooms, I prayed quieter. Then I went around the perimeter of my house and I prayed around the perimeter of my house and then I prayed around the perimeter of my property. We had a beautiful property in Diamond Bar. What is that, ladies and gentlemen? What, what happens in a moment like that? How do we describe and define in our cerebral world what just transpired when the, the, um, the nightmare stopped instantly? Dana and I were talking about it the other day. She's 13 now. And she said, Dad, I can still see that dark form in my bedroom. I said, I could still see as an eight-year-old waking up and there was this person, this thing in my room. And I, this great man of faith, was only trying to get some sleep. We started... January 1, reading through the Gospels as our little community. There's about 40 of us starting this little church plant. And uh, there's 90 days from January 1 until Easter Sunday, and there's 89 chapters. And when I got to Matthew chapter 4, it was almost as if God arrested me, stopped me in my tracks, and said, I have to reteach you. Now, I've been a Christian for 40 years. I don't know how many times I've read this. It must be hundreds of times. But it was as if God arrested me and said, son, I have to teach you afresh. And so when Darren invited me, I thought, wow, it's incredible. He's teaching on fasting, which this text is about. I don't need to go there. But you are also reading the same passage in Luke. You know what's interesting? I so love what John Mark's done. John Mark's a dear friend, um, and, and I so appreciate that he is reintroducing us to the rabbi Jesus and we as apprentices around three primary ideas, that we are to be with Jesus, we are to become like Jesus, and we are to do the things Jesus did. That's pretty good. You know that, don't you? you, you you've, you've got the Darren Roundsend version of the John Mark Comer version of Dallas Willard. I mean, it's just <laughs> finding its way around. I, I'm not good enough to be the fourth person in that holy trinity. I, I'm just, I, I, I just have to be me. What is the third thing? To do the things that Jesus did. Now, 1 John 3 tells us the reason the Son of Man came was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason the Son of Man came was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, if that's true, which it is, the ways of Jesus is not just silence and solitude. It's not just Sabbath. It is not just fasting. It is not just waiting prayer. Can I, can I just speak honestly this morning? Do you mind if I don't kind of worry about treading on your toes for a little bit? I am so intrigued by the prayer culture that's developing. The good part 
is that we'll be waiting to hear the voice of God. The bad part is I don't hear anyone interceding anymore. I don't hear anyone praying until they are hoarse, they are sweated wet, they are exhausted, they cannot speak anymore because hour upon hour of intercession has commanded their very soul. It has exhausted them. If we are to do, and you will hear, I'm a passionate guy, but if we are to do the works that Jesus did, it includes that we are to destroy the works of the devil. This was the works of the devil. So as I was studying this, what interested me is the similarities of this encounter and the cross. Walk with me for just a moment, if you, if you, if you don't mind. Isn't it interesting that in this moment, there is something happening outside of the city, the wilderness, the garden. Isn't it interesting that in the same moment the enemy comes like darkness covered the earth? Isn't it interesting, which I'll get to in a moment, the Father is not there. It's not mentioned in this passage. And neither is the Father at the cross when Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Isn't it interesting that this looks like a boot camp, a first run at defeating the devil because the big one is yet to come? So when we look at this passage, what is interesting to me is the fact that Jesus or the text opens with then Jesus, let me get it here, was led by the Spirit. You know, folks, I want to reactivate the language and passion for the believers where I have some influence to re-engage around the conversation that we have a devil, and I don't like preaching this. I, I want you to know, this is not my gig. But I think as we've sought to prioritize other things, we have neglected the fact that we are a people at war. How many of you, now I'm going to use two crass words, and please apologize, but I was standing there praying, and this is what I heard. Now, don't blame God for my crass language. But this is what I heard. It just shows you how warped my ears are. Some of these people have had the snot kicked out of them this week. Some of them have had the crap kicked out of them this week. Now, I'm not saying God used that language, so don't blame him. Don't blame Darren either. Blame South Africa. You see, because what's happened is we're looking for platitudes, affirmations, and dreams to wrestle with the real issue, which is Satan himself and his cohort of demons who are there, dear friends, John 10, 10, to rob, to kill, and to destroy. Their agenda is your destruction and mine, your marriage's destruction and mine. Our kids to be on drugs, our kids to be uh, softening the trauma of their soul with other addictions and sexual perversion. Tim Keller was speaking recently, I listened to him, and, and he said that our way in a secular world, you're speaking to the New Yorkites, and he said the way we deal with this is we talk about personal evil, we speak about societal evil, but we have forgotten to talk about supernatural evil. And in our sophisticated world, our world of an educated palate, we find it so difficult to imagine there is a real personal devil who has got a whole army of demons who are absolutely out 
committed to your demise and mine. C.S. Lewis, whenever you speak about anything, you've got to quote C.S. Lewis. So here's my turn. He said there are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. Hail a materialist, evil doesn't exist. A magician, oh, there's evil around every corner. They, the demons, view both with equal delight. When we parent, saw lots of little kiddos running around today, sadly, tragically, do you not think the enemy is happy to use your kids on you? And if you always think the way is just to mollycoddle them, do you honestly think the enemy is uh, uh, just passively watching the scenario? He is involved, dear friends, at every level in your life and in mine. Let me read another passage of Scripture. I mean, uh, uh, N.T. Wright, rather. Well, that's almost the same. Um, <laughs> almost. One of the, you know what's funny? Is, is I left my notes at home. So, so this morning I was praying and I was scribbling and rewriting my notes because I enjoy it. I, I, I don't teach one message the same ever. And I'm scribbling and writing and I feel really good about them. And I open my jolly bag and I, can you believe it? You left your... I thought, all right, Lord, this message is either in me or we're in trouble. So, so far, we're doing okay. So I sent Meryl a message quickly. I said, because she's going to be here for the 11. She's a therapist, and one of her clients has just freaked out, so she's busy sorting that out. And I just said, babe, if you come to the 11th, if you get here, please bring my notes. So if this is not a good one, stay for the 11. It gets better. <laughs> all right, one of the key elements of Jesus' perception of his task, please hear me, this is exquisite. One of the main key elements of Jesus' perception of his task was therefore his redefinition of who the real enemy was. The pagan hordes surrounding Israel, including Rome, were not the actual foe of the people of Yahweh. Standing behind the whole problem of Israel's exile was the dark power known in some Old Testament traditions as Satan and the accuser. The struggle that is coming to a head was therefore cosmic. Ladies and gentlemen, we are not just wrestling in the world of intellect and the world of emotions. My generation, those of us formed by modernity, was I think, therefore I am. The millennials are forged by the I feel, therefore I am, but we as Christians discern that there is a supernatural world that's beyond our thinking and our feeling. If you are vulnerable to a highly emotional life, do you not think the enemy is going to prod and poke you? Oh, I feel so down. Oh, I feel so black. Oh, I feel so desperate. Oh, I feel so depressed. The enemy says, I got her. I've got him. So we want more tablets. To, and I'm not against tablets, but, but we've got more tablets to deal with something that could at its very root be demonic. That requires us to deal with the works of darkness like my eight-year-old girl hiding under the cover in her bed because there was a dark evil form in her room. Carl Bratton, theologian, author, said true Christianity is stuck with the devil. Like it or not, the decision for or against the devil 
is a decision for or against the integrity of Christianity as such. We simply cannot subtract the devil along with demons, angels, principalities, powers, and elemental spirits without doing violence to the very shape of our Christian faith as transmitted by Scripture and tradition, our primary sources. What happened here? The Bible uses the word then. Then implies narrative. Then, now. There's a story unfolding. What's the story? Chapter 3 is predominantly about the reunion of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit come together to have a picnic at the river. It's a glorious moment. It's one of my favorite moments in the Bible, as I'm sure it is yours. It's that moment where Jesus goes into the waters of baptisms, the Father rips open the curtain of heaven, and he looks down and he says, it's my boy. Look, everyone, it's my boy. I love him. I'm so proud of him. And the Holy Spirit comes. And he hovers and he empowers and this glorious reunion of the eternal unity. And this moment of delightful identity, Jesus, the Father says, no matter what happens to you, you are my boy. I don't know how I stumbled onto it, but from when my kids were small, I would do a date with dad. And I would take them out to do something with them. And Dana particularly loved playing Cinderella, and I was always the ugly stepsister. Didn't quite get that. <laughs> wasn't how it was meant to be. I was supposed to be the, like the prince, but she had another prince in mind. And, and then he did land from London, six foot four, and that was a really sad day for me. So I was still the ugly stepsister. But, 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 but you see, I still today have an 18-year-old son, long surfer, blonde hair. I've got a 30-year-old daughter. I've got a 32-year-old daughter who's got four kids. They're planting a church in Perth, Australia. It's in the blood. And I will still, as I did now in December, I took Nass out for a meal. I walked into this restaurant. She's gorgeous. I'm not, I'm not biased. She is gorgeous. And I walk into this restaurant, and he has this gorgeous blonde by my side, kind of blonde brunette thing. And, 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 and you can see everyone saying, who is this? He's like the sugar daddy. Is, is, is he like the guy? I mean, like, uh, how can an old guy like that who's wrestling with his belly walk out with this gorgeous girl? But, but every, time, every time we have a date with dad, there has to be a moment where I take their faces figuratively or physically and say, I love you. No matter what you've been through, Nassa, and she's got four kids, planted a church, and she's starting nursing school now, going off to college. So we can always do more than we think we can. Because it's that defining moment where God the Father looks over Jesus and he grabs his face like this. Hey, my boy, I love you. I am so proud of you. Nass, Dad loves you. I am so proud proud of you. Even if you don't make nursing school, even if you don't, you don't graduate, I love you. I am so proud of you. Tian, who's just come through, he's 18, he's just kind of come through this middle, later teenage years with all of his complexities. I still hold his face. He's bigger than me, stronger than me. I love you, boy. I'm so proud of you. See, that's the front end of the narrative of which Matthew 4 makes so much more sense. But please don't think you stay in Matthew 4. Please don't think God is always holding your face and always saying, I love you. I am so proud of you. The latter part of Luke 4, which you would have read today, I'm sure, because all of you are nice, obedient Long Beachites. I mean, the Costa Mesa people wouldn't have read, but the Long Beach people would have read it. 
See, that's the inauguration moment. That's where Jesus gets up. He unrolls the scrolls and he says this. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to set at liberty those who are captive. That's his inauguration moment where his calling is clarified. Between identity and calling is what? Demonic assault. The sandwich of your life and mine. Between identity, this is my beloved son, daughter, whom I'm so proud, and this is my moment. And it gets redone and redone and redone. Luke chapter 4, it says, and the, the, the devil left him for an opportune moment. You and I, dear friends, are not exempt from that opportune moment. This will happen to you and it will happen to me, and it's part of the story. Why did Mark chapter 1, speaking of this event, why did Mark write, the Holy Spirit drove Jesus to the wilderness? Matthew 4, Luke 4, he said that he was led by the Spirit. I think because Jesus didn't want to go. Because I think Jesus knew what was going to happen for 40 days. He was going to get the Watson and beat out of him. Because between every moment of identity and every clarifying moment of calling comes this moment of collision where you and I have a cosmic collision with the devil. And if you don't believe he exists, he is quite happy with that because he's going to come and slap the snot out of you. Does that make sense? What happens here? Three things transpire. Oh dear, I've lost my stopwatch. Okay. Okay. Three things transpire. You know, in our, just before we moved here, we went to a game reserve. It's one of our favorite things to do in Africa. I don't know if there's anything really more compelling to my African soul than sitting around a fire in the evening hearing the Africans' lions roar in the background as we eat the fire and we drink our, our sundowners. There's something deeply compelling and resonating in a way that I cannot describe to anyone. And so we went for our final drive as we call it, and, and, and we'd given our car away and our, the little the stuff we had, we had uh, en route here to America, and a friend lent me a brand new BMW. Now, I have to tell you, I'd only had janky cars up until that point in time, and, and someone actually, I think, was kind to take our Golf, I, I, but, but they were happy to get a car, and I was happy to give them the car and trust God for Five more cars. I don't know. Something really kind of prosperity type theology would have helped me in the moment. So, so I'm driving this BMW. I've got this gorgeous wife. I've got two gorgeous daughters. They're sitting in the car and I'm styling. I mean, I'd never had driven a brand new BMW before. And we were, we were coming along the, 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 this little dusty road in the Kruger National Park. The ravine was uh, kind of oodling its way down, rich vegetation as happens to be around the water. And uh, we drove into this herd of impala. They're gorgeous little antelope, little deers. And they always have the scouts on the edges with their noses up and the little horns pointing back, sniffing, looking to see. And they have this little bark. And then the, 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 the herd knows that there's a predator in the area. It was, a, it was a flat plain. You couldn't see far. It couldn't have been a lion, but they were agitated because you can see the lion, the gorgeous mane going, the muscles on the back. A leopard you wouldn't see. The leopard would hit you before you even knew they were there. The cheetah come low. They hit hard. They've only got about 100 meters worth of energy, and then they're done. I didn't think it was either. And as we were cruising slowly, antelope or impala to the left of us, impala to the right of us, uh, suddenly an explosion out of the bush 
two hyena came through, and they have the most dastardly sound. I tried to give it once, and Meryl pleaded with me never to do it again. So um, I'm afraid you'll have to YouTube it if, if you want a version. But they came, they came pounding, these big chests, big front legs, low, and the, the most dastardly. I, I think if there is a devil in the animal world, it's the hyena. And, and, and they came running up the bank and exploded uh, kind of probably 15 meters from the car. Needless to say, the, the, the herd scattered. And you know what was interesting, and also obviously absolutely scary, I looked and I saw these antelope running towards me and I thought of my friend's brand new car and how am I going to explain to him as we peel a few de uh, deer out of the car, you know? And, and, and they, just, they just bounded over us. It was, it was like everything was in slow motion. But I watched. You know what was interesting is the, the hyena never went for the scouts, the big males. Just scattered the herd. And in scattering the herd saw the old, the fragile, the weak, the distressed, the disorientated, and took them down. Why did the devil have to have this moment with Jesus? Because he does it to you and to me all the time. It's an interesting little verse in the Bible. It says, do not forsake the gathering of the brethren, as is the case of some. And the enemy gets it right, dear friend, to let us believe we can miss this. It's optional. You know, if we didn't have a bad week, if the kids haven't got sport, if, 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 oh, all right, we'll go on Sunday. And the hyena just stands there licking his chops saying, I got you. Might not be this week, might not be next. I'm patient. I've got you. I'm watching. Because slowly I'm just going to separate you from the herd. Slowly I'm going to push you to the side. And then when you are so injured, so vulnerable, so uncertain, so disorientated, I'll move in. And I will come and take you. And there is a deconstructionist language that church is optional, that the average American Christian goes to church about one and a half times a month, and we think it's okay. My dear friends, you have a devil who is out to destroy you. And please don't think the one who has been here since the beginning of time is stupid. Please don't think he doesn't have a tactic or a strategy against you. If we could, if time stood still, and I asked you all to take a pen and paper, and I asked you to write down the tactics the enemy uses against you. Every one of you should be able to say, Chris, we got this. Paul says in Corinthians, you are not unaware of the devil's devices or the devil's schemes or the devil's agenda. Oh, Chris, we got it. We know, we, we got this. I know exactly what he does. This is how he does it. I had a violent temper as a young man. My father was an alcoholic. And I think the way in which I, I, I wrestled with the sheer anger of having to grow up in a home like that was that th this anger brewed inside of me. And I, I'm a pretty even-keeled guy. I think I'm quite likable. I mean, Meryl still likes me. Um, 38 years of marriage, we're we, we okay. But it would boil. And then I would lose it. Two nights before we got married, I was so mad. In South Africa, the walls are brick. I hit the wall as hard as I could, and I fell. The pain was so bad, I fell to the floor. I thought, now you're going to be in the church on Sunday. It's going to be, everyone's going to see just what an asshole you are with this cast on my arm. But it was never my fault. Meryl just didn't make me angry. That guy driving the car didn't act like an absolute jerk. It was never my fault. The enemy says, you're absolutely right. It's never your fault. 
until I realized it fully was. Until I realized there was an agenda by the enemy that he got right all the time. Things are going sweet with Meryl and I. Beautiful, uh, marriage is great, everything's sweet. He says, oh, I really don't like this. I'm, I'm going to deal with this. Brew, brew, stew, stew. Bah! By the grace of God, I was never physical with Meryl. It was a strategy the enemy used. And as long as I blamed someone else, I was never in victory. What did he do with Jesus? I'm sorry I've taken so long. I'm going to be quick with these three things. What did he do with Jesus? Number one, he went for his physicality. Where was Jesus at his weakest? He was man. He was human, just like us, yet was without sin. Fully human. And so he went for Jesus' physicality. Jesus was hungry. He had not eaten for 40 days. And the enemy said, why don't you turn this bread, this, these rocks into bread. You, you young guys and gals, I know you want to enjoy being young, but do you know most pornography is viewed after 11 o'clock at night? When do you think you're at your most vulnerable? Not now. 10.30 on a Sunday morning. Not now. When you are at your most vulnerable, when you've gone over the tired, when you've gone over the hungry, when you've gone over the issues of life, and you think, you know what? It's been a pretty damn difficult week. You know, just a little bit. I mean, I really, it's a reward. I deserve this. And he says, oh, yeah. Yeah. Your wife's sleeping. Yeah. You know what? Reward yourself. You know what? Just five minutes. God made night for us to sleep. I'm not a legalist, but I do want to know God has practices and we're learning the practices and one of them is you sleep at night. Why? Because the enemy comes when we are tired, vulnerable, hungry, exhausted, disorientated by ourselves. The hyena comes and he hits the herd and the herd scatters and you are by yourself in front of your TV. How do you solve it? Turn your TV off at 9.30, your, your computer, your iPad, and say no more because I know the enemy's devices. He came at Jesus where Jesus was weakest. He came at him in his physicality. I wish I could say more time doesn't allow me. The second thing, he came at Jesus in the area of trust. In between identity and the clarity of calling is always a conversation of trust. Can I trust you? 2010. God spoke to me about handing Southlands over. I did not want to. I led it for 14 years. God said to me that he'd give me a broken little... The, the, God speaks to me with images. I I'm I'm a, have a highly kind of uh, developed imagination, visualization. And God said to me, I'll give you a seven-year-old foster little girl, metaphorically, who's been abused, but you will walk her down the aisle one day because I love being a dad, love my girls. So it was a very vivid picture for me. And one day, God spoke to me and he said, it's time. Walk her down the aisle. I said, no, I'm not ready. Only time I fought God in my life to the best of my knowledge. So I said, all right, this is what I'm going to do. I need three of my friends to confirm. The men I love and trust who will take no BS from me will shoot from the hip. I caught three men around the world. I said, I'm not greeting you. I ask you this question only on the phone. I ask this question of you only. What is God saying to me now? And all three of them said, and I quote, that was the conversation. I'm not saying hi. What is God saying to me? 
hand over Southlands, hand her over now, and hand her over to Alan. So you think God's spoken to you, though? Now, I'm 52. I have no guaranteed income. I said, God, this is not right. I should be at the peak of my earning power. I should be, you know, doing all the stuff we throw at God. And he asked me that question, and it's now been eight years. And he asked me the same question, can you trust me? Can you trust me? That's what he said to Jesus. Can you trust God? Come on. Just throw yourself off this press, this, 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 this temple. Come on. The revelation is that underneath Deuteronomy says, underneath are the everlasting arms. Between every chapter of your life of identity and calling comes this question, dear friends. Can you trust him? I'm 59. I turned 60. God says plant a church. I say, you're nuts. Church planting is for the young. Look at these young, this gorgeous little blonde. That's how old you're supposed to be when you church plant. Not an old guy with a big midriff. That's not when you church plant. It's the wrong time. God says, no, it's just the right time, son. Just the right time. Perfect time, actually. See, whatever your story is right now, the question is, can you trust him? You're single, I'm gonna, can you trust him? You got married two years ago and you think, oh, geez, this is the wrong dude. I found one from Jerksville. This is the wrong guy. God says, can you trust me? Can you trust me? Should I have a kid? Shouldn't I have a kid? Should I have a kid? Should... Can you trust me? See, because every time when the enemy comes in, he will challenge you at your weakness and he will challenge your trust capacity. Dear friend, can you trust him? And can I say to those who are older like me, it never stops. It's not, oh, you've walked with the Lord a couple of decades. You know what? We won't put any more trust issues in front of you. Oh, yeah, we will. Oh, oh yeah, we will. Funny little story. We, we, we had this little Genesis thing going. I had two months salary left. Two months. We buy a house in East Coast of Mesa for a lot of money. I'm saying, God, you are nuts. I've got two months worth of salary. And now you're asking me to buy that house? Can you trust me? I've heard that so, such a lot. I've heard that a lot. Every person, they said, go and fundraise, Chris. I said, I'm a South African. We don't fundraise. We trust God. No, you're in America now. <laughs> I go to Merrill. And don't wives just have this way of saying that? I said, babe, you know, I'm not a tr fundraiser. She said, you're just stubborn. So I said, okay. <laughs> Every person I went to to ask for money, not one person gave me a dime. And then the checks started coming. Dubai Church. Hey, Chris, we just prayed as an eldership. We, from Dubai, we want to give you money every month. God says, so we have a conversation. Didn't I say, trust me? Ladies and gentlemen, we cannot have the conversation about calling if we don't have an accompanying conversation about trust. Because our calling is not based on our ability to manage the moment. It's based on our ability to trust the God. Lastly, thank you for being so gracious. Not only is it an issue of weakness, not only is it an issue of trust, but it's an issue of worship. You know what's interesting to me as I studied the text? Two things. The one is these moments have an ability to surface our idol. When we're under pressure, when we're being squeezed between Identity and calling, we're being squeezed, and all of our idols surface. The things that we lean on, depend upon, we want. The things that we highly value. Look at your calendar. If you give me your, your, your planner, I will tell you what your idol is. 
Give me your checkbook, I will tell you what your idol is. It's not, it's not a complicated thing. You don't have to be a, a rocket scientist to know that. And in a moment like this, it shows you what our idols are, the things we won't let go no matter what. But there's another thing here, and this is where I want to land. I wonder if the enemy didn't offer Jesus a way out. Think about it for a moment. He stands there, he says, all the authority, I will give you the authority of the, the, the kingdoms of this world, I will give to you. Jesus doesn't challenge that because he knows the devil has that. I think what he did is he gave Jesus a way to get out of dodge. He said, listen, you don't have to go through the cross. You don't have to die a brutal death bludgeoned by soldiers who were used to torturing people to the very edges of their life. You don't have to be strung out naked for everyone to come and spit at, beat, slap. Please don't think of that kind of Renaissance picture of this haloic Jesus. They, 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 they crucified him at, at, at human at eye level because the idea was to shame them so badly that no one wanted to do that. Then you would go past and you would slap him and say, you son of a bitch, spit on them beat them, call them every name under the sun until eventually the sheer brutality of the moment exhausts the person and they can no longer carry their own weight and die a most dastardly death. Satan says, come here, just do this. And you won't have to go through that. He will always offer you an easy way. He will always offer you a bypass to suffering. And ladies and gentlemen, there is no inheritance without suffering we will share in his suffering to partake in his glory. We don't want it. That moment, our land, that moment when we're aware that what we're doing has nothing to do with us but God's kindness is the moment all this makes sense. Meryl and I had our 30th wedding anniversary in Paris. And I'll never forget the moment we were walking along the Seine Notre Dame was on our left, the sun was setting, and a Parisian pulled out his violin and started playing violin. It's beautiful music. I got a beer, got Mero a glass of wine. The moment seemed to require it. And we sat there, and we sat on the sidewalk, and the locals started dancing. And I just sat there, tears in my eyes. I said, God, I should never be able to do this. I'm a barefoot kid from an African farm. What on earth am I doing here in Paris? It's that sharing in his glory and the sheer wonder and acts of kindness and generosity. What do I do that deserves this moment? Absolutely nothing. But to get there, I love you, my boy. I'm so proud of you. Really? Can you really trust God? I tell you what, we'll bypass suffering. All that you've got to do is this. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.